I'm Megan King. And I'm Sydney Bordignaw, and this is The Curve. Welcome to The Curve, a Canadian-born podcast series following the latest on the COVID-19 crisis. Typically, each episode looks at the indirect effects that this pandemic has had on Canada and the world. In this episode, we'll explore the direct effects that systemic racism has had on the Black community and discuss the protests that are happening during this global pandemic. Due to social distancing regulations during the pandemic, all interviews have been recorded via Zoom or phone call. This may affect the audio quality of certain interviews. Protests began almost two weeks ago in support of the Black Lives Matter campaign, fighting against police brutality and systemic racism. A viral video showing Minneapolis resident George Floyd being suffocated by police officer Derek Chauvin sparked anger across the world and began the call to action that has black communities and allies protesting internationally. Since the death of George Floyd, the four police officers associated have been charged and protests rage on in the streets, condemning the actions of a society that contributes to the mistreatment of the black community. We want to take this opportunity to highlight black voices in our own community and provide a platform to listen, educate and learn from our mistakes. As white women ourselves, we will never understand what racism feels like, but it is our responsibility to acknowledge our privilege and use it to support others. While the protests may have started in the States, we want to localize this issue and better understand how black communities in Canada are impacted. This not only includes the relationship between black Canadians and the police, but also how treatment differs socially, economically, medically, politically. We will be joined by sociologist Patrick Denise later on in the show to learn about his team's research pertaining to how black communities are disproportionately being affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. But first, we now go to an interview with Rosemary Sadler on her experience as a black woman growing up in Toronto, Canada. So we're now joined by Rosemary Sadler. Ms. Sadler was the president of the Ontario Black History Society for 22 years, where she provided essential pressure to the Canadian government's 1995 decision to make the celebration of Black History Month a national annual event. She's a historian, author, educator, and Black history expert based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, with publications including Harriet Tubman, Freedom Seeker, Freedom Leader, and the Kids Book of Black Canadian History. Ms. Sadler, thank you for joining us on The Curve. Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's a very challenging time, but thank you for inviting me. The reason we are having this conversation right now is due to the protests that are happening globally and the outrage that we are seeing from so many over police brutality and racism as a whole. In Canada, it is often presented that we are much more inclusive and diverse, but what has your experience as a black woman born and raised in Toronto, Canada, with a long history of Canadian roots looked like? First of all, let me say that in terms of Black History Month in Canada, I was responsible for securing the annual guaranteed celebration of February as Black History Month with the City of Toronto, with the province of Ontario, and I went to every province seeking that commemoration. Then I did go to Jean Augustine to obtain her support, her action on having Black History Month commemorated, actually declared, uh, across Canada. And the reason that I did that is because there was really nothing that required anyone to give any consideration to people of African descent, their presence, their history, and their contribution. And so this was a symbol to begin to affirm that reality 
which I felt was incredibly important. It wasn't my idea nor my initiative, and there's a long history as to how it evolved in Canada, but I certainly was building on the initiative of Dr. Daniel G. Hill, Wilson Brooks, Lorraine Hubbard, and so many others who had founded the Ontario Black History Society and who in turn had built upon the contribution of the Canadian Negro Women's Association in creating and basically bringing into being in Toronto, the first ever celebration of February as Black History Month. Um, so I was building on what people who had gone before me had done. And we all, I think, were coming at this from that recognition that it was important for this to happen. You've asked me in what does it mean in terms of me as a Black woman in growing up in the city of Toronto. And let me say that often there is a, an assumption that because I have a particular look or a particular level of education or because of whatever people are, you know, assessing me by at any given moment, that I therefore could not have ever had any difficulty because my blackness would not have been either noticed or been problematic to my experience. And that is, in many respects, perhaps true. But it's also true that there were times when, many times when, and many times currently when, my being a non-white person has been a source of issue for someone. So we have the obvious issues in terms of, you know, being followed in a store, being assumed to be doing something that you shouldn't be doing, and so on. We are in this space and time. We, we are having the need for this discussion because of the original way, the original moment when people of African descent came to this country. And so it's that further experience of what does it mean, even though the first named person who came to Canada uh, was a free person, the first waves of people who came to Canada were coming because they were seeking freedom or they were coming because they were enslaved and the property of someone else. Just to kind of add on to that, we are constantly at this moment seeing people online saying, at least we're not as bad as the US when it comes to racism. And we've seen a lot of that over the course of the past week. What, what, what is better? If you are still not treated equally, if you still are not, if you're still dealing with some of these issues, and there are many, from the subtle to the deadly, if you are still experiencing that as a result of your black skin, then how is it better? It's just different. I, let me give you an example. I, um, as you know, I have long roots in this country, and I grew up in Ontario. But I had the opportunity to visit New Brunswick uh, a number of years ago. My father had not was from New Brunswick, but never had really returned for a variety of reasons that 
I won't go into right now. And when I was there, uh, I was actually there on a book tour, and I saw a place called Rothsay, which was absolutely gorgeous. And it was not too far away from another place called Loch Lomond, where um, some of my father's ancestors had, had been living. And how odd it was that people who had arrived in the same place at the same time had such different experiences. How odd it was that here I am in, in my lifetime, the first person in my family to have graduated from university. How is it that after all these generations, that was the case? And so it's a mixed feeling of success, but also dismay that for some reason, there has been this discrepancy. And so if people of Africa, if that is my experience and my family has been here for generations and other black people have been here for generations and somehow we have not been in a position to be included, to get those jobs, to get those opportunities, to constantly be denied entry to things that can help to secure our lives in Canada, how is that different than the situation of African Americans? It's the same song, a slightly different tune. In your opinion, what are the most pressing issues that need to be addressed in Ontario or Canada as a whole when dealing with anti-Black racism? For example, for those who are currently in positions of power or maintain a leadership role in our country, how can they help enact change? We need to be listening to what people of African descent are saying about their experience and believing that. Not so very long ago, we had something called the Me Too movement, where the situation of women being aggressively abused sexually uh, in certain areas, in certain ways, in certain places, somehow was magically transformed from uh, a one-off or just a, a woman's situation that we couldn't necessarily believe to something that was incredibly believable and broad-based. And I think that we are in a same, the same position right now in terms of, in terms of racism and anti-Black racism, that it is a moment in time when we cannot turn back and say that there's nothing that we can do. I think Black people have to keep pushing, have to keep resisting. And I think that people who are not Black have to give that space and that affirmation um, to whatever it is they're suggesting, to try things. And that it may not be the perfect solution, but to try things that maybe haven't been given credence previously in order to help to address the situation that we have now. As an expert on Black Canadian history, how has the way Black Canadians are treated not only by police, but by society evolved over the years? I don't know that it has evolved. I, I think that the police are just one representative of a very complex measure of our society. And those police officers are just, pro just other people who that's their job. And of course, we know that certain people are drawn into the police academies. But 
I think it goes back to what are we doing in terms of schools? What are we doing in terms of the education that we're providing to our young people who are going to go on to become those police officers and those people who are in departments hiring people uh, or not? What, how, what, are we, what are we doing for them? To go back to my first comment about, you know, encouraging and facilitating the establishment of February as Black History Month, it wasn't just for, oh, hooray, it's Black History Month. It was because I really hoped that there would be a rollout of all kinds of measures that would speak to placing the Black community in a position where they would be regarded in a different way to help to bring about some societal change through education, um, which we're still working on. We have reached another tipping point, but this issue isn't new with the nationwide protests began with the murder of George Floyd in America and the international protests in Canada and around the world. Where can this moment potentially take us and what possibilities does this present for progress? I would like to think that this again would take us, would be like the black me too, because it's not just the black me too. It then becomes a we too, where with the thankfully having this proof where no one can be suspect or curious or challenge, it's clear what happened. And, and, and it's, it, gives, uh, it gives credence to what people have been saying and experiencing over and over. Uh, again, it is not a one-off. And so if we are at a moment in time when everyone is able to look at this, the facts, look at the evidence that has been provided to us and say, this is wrong, we are outraged over this, it cannot go on, that is a moment when we can then tr transform everything that has to do with the treatment of people of African origin. We have to understand that this is a system that was built on inequality and racism. We have to understand the racist roots of this society, even though it's uncomfortable. And we have to begin to question privilege and bias in a way that maybe we haven't given ourselves as a society permission to previously. To go back to what you said about this being one of those moments, these protests and the social media attention being presented at this moment makes it feel like it could be a focusing event. How can we all ensure that this attention does not dissipate but becomes a focusing event that leads to change? Do you feel like this moment is going to be different? I hope it is. I hope it is different. When we have so many people globally saying this is wrong, we're outraged. When we have high profile personalities crying or angry, this is a time when people can really say, you know what, this has got to stop. We have to do a better job of this. And I think that the, the fact that it's happening around the time of our social isolation has given people more time to give consideration to the things that they value most and what they want to have going forward. And so I think it can spark the kinds of change that need to happen um, at every level, level, the interpersonal the, and as well as the societal. We are going to hopefully see some changes in laws that will 
make certain things less possible or more possible. I think that we're going to have to see changes in institutional practices that will help to make it better, not just for people of African origin, but for everyone. Because often those things that have changed in society have been brought about because of the advocacy of the African American and the African Canadian community to uh, make things better, but they make things better for everyone. We noticed that the big difference in the murder of George Floyd from other police brutality and anti-Black racism cases is the undeniable video proof. And much like the Rodney King case, video recording is able to legitimize these stories and disallow people from pleading ignorance. So what does this say about where we are as a society that we need proof for non-Black people to mobilize? The same thing that it said about women and us not believing what they were saying about their experience in being sexually abused in various spaces. Um, I think that there it's easier to deny that something has happened rather than to confront and change the the circumstances and the policies and the practices that have supported and allowed it to happen. It's easier to deny the reality of police brutality or to deny that um, uh, I don't want this to come down to just police brutality. I, I think that it, it's, it's so pervasive through so many levels of our society that I, I guess I'm, I'm feeling particularly frustrated right now myself. Uh, I mean, even in terms of hiring we will have people deny that black people have even applied. So there's just so many levels here. But I think that with this undeniable proof, what it says is that when we are put as a society into a situation where we can no longer deny what has taken place, it helps to bring about the changes that led up to those those situations taking place in the first place. These protests differ from many past efforts because of the timing in conjunction with the COVID-19 global pandemic. What do you think this says about people's passion for this cause when considering that they are putting their lives at risk in many different ways? I think people have had more opportunity to be alone with their thoughts and their experiences. And I think that it also means that people have had more time to see a number of things going on on social media uh, that social media has reported to them. People aren't just angry today or this week because of George Floyd. Um, people have been angry and for their own mental health, for their own ability to cope, for their own need to be able to go into work every day, have put it, parked it someplace else. They can't park it someplace else now because it's there for them, it's confronting them, it's right in front of them, that nobody can sidestep this anymore. A president standing in front of a church holding a Bible isn't going to change the knee on the neck of a man for nine minutes that the world has viewed. We have to remain focused on the issue Uh, the situation, the reality of what took place. And we have to be able to keep, hold that up as a beacon of 
not so much hope, but inspiration to know that this can never happen again. We have seen it. It can never happen again. On top of dealing with race-based violence, the Black community is also being greatly affected by COVID-19 right now. And the pandemic has proven to be disproportionately infecting and killing Black people across the states. Unfortunately, race-based data has only recently begun being collected in Canada. How does this make you feel? It's unfortunate that race-based data has not been collected across Canada, but I understand that Toronto has recently indicated that it will start to make that determination. Uh, what I think, um, while the population is very different. The, the percentage of, of Black people across the United States is much greater than the percentage across Canada. Toronto definitely has critical mass of people of African descent. So I think that having the race-based data for Toronto will give an indication. But we also know that the COVID-19 is have decimating people who have um, depressed immune sis, uh, systems, who might be uh, experiencing poverty and therefore not having access to opportunities and ability to self-isolate um, to people who might be over a certain age and so on. There are so many other factors here. But in the United States, yes, it has been, it has decimated the Black community. And also these, the people who are more likely to be in low paying essential services, the people who are cashiers, the people who are cleaners, the people who are doing the delivery work. Those are the people who probably will, we will see very high rates of, um, of, of infection or death in those populations. The nursing staff, who, where do black people work? That is where we should be looking to see what the ratio of, um, of infection is in relation to um, the rest of the population. I suppose these stats are just showing how systemic this issue is then. I think so. And I think that while the situations are a bit different, I think that the Toronto situation, once we have the race-based data, might prove to be quite significant. And certainly, anecdotally, I can, I'm aware of uh, a number of people who are in the nursing profession who were infected, a couple who passed away. And uh, very recently, uh, one uh, elderly Black woman in, residing in a nursing home, Wilma Morrison, who also passed away from COVID-19. So it's, it'll be interesting to see what comes of the race-based analysis. On top of this, the reason that we wanted to do this for an episode of our podcast was to be able to provide a platform in which we listen. How can white people and non-Black POC show allyship at this time? I think, I think it's uh, about asking and listening, asking what they can do, listening to what people are telling them without... <laughs> disbelief, accepting their stories. And, and, and then I think working to support, to you in working in unity with initiatives that they are trying to affect, to take things further, to make sure that things happen in terms of policies that will make things better for most of us. But mostly it's listening, because this is a time, I think, that we can 
give greater consideration to what is going on for people who are the other. Do you have any final words for our audience that you would like to leave them with? I think it's really hard to articulate racist abuse. And I think that it might be, you might find that when you would first approach, if you are a non-Black person, when you first approach a Black person who is in your circle to find out about things that might have happened to them, it might be, you might not get the answers you're expecting initially, but keep listening and keep being there to be supportive. Um, also, I think that we have to make sure um, that we are letting our government officials know that we are concerned about this issue, that it isn't going to go away. Don't wait. I, I think that when this news cycle passes, and that could happen within the next couple of weeks, who knows, that we continue to keep this at the top, at top of mind and top of our actions. There are some wonderful resources about what white people can do, although that applies to others as well. And there are also, I think, opportunities for real shared communication, purposeful shared communication. There are a variety of resources that people can use to educate themselves, from blacklivesmatter.com to canadianwomen.org and the many other resources that are out there. Education is the first step to better understanding the privilege we inherently have and how we can use it effectively. To learn more about how COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting Black Canadians, we spoke to Patrick Denise, a Western University sociologist, about his research on the links between race and health. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Can we begin by having you explain what your COVID-19 hotspot prediction research is all about? Yeah, of course. Um, So we had seen a lot of coverage from the United States that African-Americans and other racialized people were more likely to get and die from COVID-19. And we wondered um, whether that was true here in Canada as well. Um, Unfortunately, at least so far, uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada doesn't um, collect or at least release information about the race or ethnicity of individual COVID patients. Um, But because we were interested in understanding what communities are bearing the brunt of the pandemic, um, and because we think this is essential to containing the spread of the virus, we asked ourselves, is there a way we can sort of leverage existing data Um, to assess whether Black and immigrant communities are disproportionately affected uh, by COVID-19 here. So with that goal in mind, we linked census data uh, with COVID-19 data to examine the association between the racial, socioeconomic, and uh, demographic composition of communities um, and the COVID-19 infection and death rates. We found that communities with higher shares of both Black and immigrant populations are also disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. What do your findings say about the relationship between race and health in Canada? Yeah, that's a good question. So reports about the pandemic initially thought of COVID-19 as kind of the great equalizer, that it would affect the advantaged and the disadvantaged alike. But emerging evidence has solidly established that that's not true. Um, And in fact, COVID-19 is exacerbating pre-existing inequalities. And like I mentioned, we had seen a lot of coverage about that relationship in the United States, but a lot less 
we had a lot, we had a less robust understanding of it here in Canada. You know, mostly from the research examining the US context, we know that Black people and immigrants tend to have limited access to health care. They have labor market disadvantages, which means that they have the sort of jobs that place them at greater risk of exposure to the virus. They tend to live in denser communities. Uh, widespread discrimination, of course, plays a role. And so while some of those things, again, are factors in the United States, they exist here in Canada too. And so while we've not yet uh, investigated sort of why these patterns exist here in Canada, we sort of have some clues um, from the U.S. context. There seems to be this narrative that racial discrimination issues in the United States don't apply to Canada. This falsity has been very problematic as this can impact the way that Canadian government officials may react to these issues. I know they've acknowledged Indigenous communities and homeless shelters as mm -hmm. vulnerable groups. Why not the Black and immigrant communities? That's a really good question. And I think part of it stems from the fact that we're just not collecting these kind of data yet. Um, so for whatever reason, whether it's Canadians' um, commitment sort of to their national policy of multiculturalism, whether it's out of uh, sort of fear of violating people's privacy, or perhaps, you know, stoking um, racial disparities, for whatever reason, we don't, uh, at least in Canada, collect very detailed data on uh, race and ethnicity. So that's kind of one of the arguments um, of our work here, that we need to do a better job of collecting that information. You know, those, those disparities exist. Um, it would be a lot better for our response to them if we knew the scope and understood a little bit more about them. Is it fair to say then that when you speak of Black Canadians being dis disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, this isn't just physical or me medical, this is a social and financial issue? I would say that's definitely true. You know, we are very careful to note that um, because we don't have individual level data, what we're really talking about is sort of the coincidence of communities with higher shares of Black as well as immigrant populations as well as uh, higher rates of COVID-19 infections and deaths. We don't yet know why these patterns exist for sure. And so a next step of our, if this sort of first uh, report was um, trying to document and understand the patterns, uh, the next step will really be about digging into why those patterns exist. And we suspect that many of the same social conditions that underlie African-Americans um, disproportionate experience of COVID-19 are similar here in Canada as well. So why is it so important then to recognize this disproportion um, in terms of Canada and what we're able to do to solve this issue? First, I think that acknowledging that Black and immigrant Canadians, or at least, again, the communities in which they live, may be especially vulnerable to the pandemic, is important. And I think this kind of acknowledgement um, can lead to some real action. You know, you mentioned earlier the Ontario's uh, COVID-19 action plan, highlighting some particularly vulnerable groups like the Indigenous peoples and the homeless. And I think that's great. Um, but our findings suggest that that list is incomplete and that uh, Black and immigrant Canadians uh, might also need targeted policies as we respond together to this pandemic. So again, I think it's about recognizing where those hotspots are, uh, which populations are more likely to be impacted by them so that we can more efficiently and equitably marshal resources. 
Absolutely. And in Canada, as, we, as, we've, as we've been saying, uh, race-based data only recently begun being collected while the states and the UK are way ahead. What disadvantages come with our slower response? Yeah, I mean, again, right, we need to collect data, we need to document uh, social disparities, we need to address social problems by designing evidence-based policies that can get at sort of the social root causes generating these inequalities in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as uh, related inequalities uh, in the job market, in education, et cetera. And just to finish, what would you like people and perhaps the government to take away from the research that you've been working on? I think a couple of things. First, again, this need for better, finer grained detail. You know, I think there, I think the concerns about privacy are valid, but I don't think that collecting uh, more and better data is antithetical to concerns about privacy. I think those things can coexist um, and the data can be collected and reported in a responsible manner. Again, that allows researchers and more importantly, policymakers to understand uh, the disparities that exist and be able to better and more quickly and efficiently respond to them. Patrick's findings show that systemic racism is still deeply rooted in Canadian society. The Ontario Human Rights Commission has found that between 2013 and 2017, a black person was 11.3 times more likely than a white person to be involved in an incident involving Toronto police use of force that resulted in serious injury or death, and 19.5 times more likely than a white person to be involved in police shooting that resulted in civilian death. In 2016, Black people made up 8.8% of the Toronto population. However, they made up 61.5% of police use of force cases that resulted in civilian death and 70% of police shootings that resulted in civilian death. This is so disproportionate. We must vote for legislative change. Petition, donate, participate, vocalize our support, and listen. Tune in on Monday when we explore how the pandemic is affecting Indigenous people and the additional challenges that communities are facing.